You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Good morning, world. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So it's uh, starting to look like Christmas. And what does that mean? Child labor. Yeah. So Hyundai, Kia, and a number of their related factories in uh, Alabama were caught using child labor, um, including a 14-year-old Guatemalan girl who was uh, found assembling auto body components. Um, what? What? Uh, and let's see, they've got uh, a Reuters, this is from Reuters, and a, uh, they found a boy as young as 12 um, being employed by SMART, uh, all capital letters, SMART Alabama LLC, a Hyundai subsidiary um, in South Alabama. Um, what? Well, I, I thought we exported child labor. I mean, I thought child labor was just to make my shoes, my clothing, my iPhone. I didn't realize it was making cars. Well, there's a big push on to bring manufacturing back to the United States. <laughs> yeah, well, and and the, well, there is, and you know, you you if you've got plants that are operating, you have to be able to find workers. And I'm not sure if there was a if I'm not sure what the issue here really is. We don't have a lot of information on what's going on, but um, Hyundai and Kia operate a lot of small suppliers that are very closely related to their companies within the states where they have plants, I think in Georgia and Alabama and others. So um, I don't know if this is a labor shortage issue. I don't know what if there's a, you know, they're trying to find cheaper labor, um, but either way, they're doing uh, some bad things down there. And it looks like they need to do a little more supervision of their suppliers. Yeah, I mean, a 12 and a 14-year-old, come on, it's not that hard. I mean, if you can't find somebody, don't hire a 12 or a 14-year-old in an auto plant. Maybe I'm Sounds an- easy. Sounds easy, right? It, it does. It does. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, uh, happy holidays, folks. Um, yeah, happy holidays on that note. Thanks, she, Anthony, for that yeah. incredibly brisk well, start. Well, look, it's that's we're just jumping right into the deep end of the pool. Um, instead, if you want, we can go a little more lighthearted. We'll go back to our our normal existential crisis involving GM Cruise. Um, finally, NHTSA is investigating GM Cruise for uh, brake checking. So you get a little too close to a GM Cruise vehicle, and it decides to. And this is an autonomous vehicle. It decides to. Hit its brakes and see, hey, you got too close to me. I'm going to make you run into me. Uh, so this is a good thing that finally NHTSA is looking into this. Right. I mean, there's a relatively, you know, relatively low number of incidents here that have been um, reported. I mean, the, the cool thing about this is that, you know, as opposed to when we normally have people who are brake checking people and other things that we see on the roads, you know, there's a record of these, you know, the, um, the companies are heard of re- the companies are required to report it. So we're seeing all of this. What were you saying? I said I, I never even heard of the the phrase brake checking until this article. Really? 
Yeah, I know. I mean, I heard of it a lot. It's it's commonly uh, something that people tend to do when they are being followed too closely by another driver. Um, I do not recommend it. It's probably one of the number one causes of road rage in America. Um, just get over in the other lane if possible, or you know, pretend it's your angry grandmother who can't drive very well. Again, that's that's how I think we should approach that situation, but. In this case, you know, you don't just have these hard stops. And it's a, you know, that's the that's the fundamental reason they opened the investigation because, you know, a hard stop creates an immediate uh risk of a collision. But also they they mentioned uh you know, there are other situations caused here when a vehicle is stranded in the middle of the road, passengers have to exit that vehicle somehow without getting hit by other cars. And, um, you know, we've also talked before on the, on the podcast about things like traffic, increased traffic that's created by these situations that might stop emergency vehicles from reaching their destinations and all sorts of other things. So um, we're glad NHTSA's looking into it. Um, I know the folks out in San Francisco are glad NHTSA's looking into it. And they're, you know, they're, they're trying to keep a, keep a pretty tight um, uh, lid on the, you know, looking at what's going on out, out in San Francisco, it seems. And, you know, I hope that's the, you know, the, the local folks and the federal folks are seem to be working together and communicating to um, try to address some of the safety issues that are, we're starting to see arise in one of this, in, in this first real deployment of autonomous technology. Well, both of my daughters have Subarus, as do I, and uh, one has an Outback, one has a Forester. Both told me that they've experienced sudden, unexpected stops uh, due to the emergency braking system in their cars. One of them said that when she was driving through a neighborhood where there was a leaf blower, the debris from the leaf blower in the street caused her car to jam on the brakes and suddenly stop as they were approaching the the, uh, the the debris in the air. The other one said that uh, their car stopped suddenly because there was a vine hanging down over the street where she was driving, and even though she didn't contact it, it was recognized by the emergency braking system and came to a dead stop. So this is a, a problem that exists in cars that goes beyond the emergency, the emergency braking of uh, AVs. Certainly, it has to be addressed for the AVs, but it probably needs to be addressed in a broader context as well. Right, and we've this is something we've seen. You know, going back to when we filed a defect petition for Nissan Rogues that were um, doing the similar things when they encountered train tracks, parking garages. Uh, other types of structures, it seemed, and they had to do some software modifications and some, and even on some vehicles, I believe they had to replace some cameras to try and address the issue. Uh, we're not completely convinced they have yet, but we're also seeing phantom braking in a number of other vehicles. I believe there are a Honda investigation. Um, Tesla's had issues there. Um, so it's something that we hope that addresses in the upcoming automatic emergency braking rule that I know they're going to release this week for us so we can read it for Christmas. <laughs> that sounds like a fun Christmas for you, uh, at least with a human driver at the wheel. Um, they can, you know, move the vehicle around. So this vine that stopped your daughter's car, 
I mean, the car wasn't immobilized. It wasn't sitting there. She could, you know, go, oh, this is bad behavior for my car and drive away. Oh, absolutely right. Yeah. With GM Cruise, it's just like, nope, the car is done. Um, it's good to and- have a person in control. And I, and I think I sent to you, gentlemen, a recent article by Phil Koopman, who is addressing the need to have human control available, even in fully autonomous cars, for situations which are life-threatening, but would almost always be unforeseen by the people developing the car. It's a very, very good article. And uh, for any of our listeners, if you'd like to see a copy of that or get a link to that, please just send us a note. We'll be happy to send it on by. That would be at uh, contact at autosafety.org. Great. And so keeping with our uh, AB vehicle thread here, uh, Waymo, the Google subsidiary of self-driving vehicles, um, are they reaching out to first responders to say, hey, when our, we want to expand where our car is driving, maybe we should talk to, you know, uh, law enforcement and emergency responders to let them know that these vehicles are on the road and what the, to do what happens. Um, it's, it's interesting in this, uh, this article, they talk about there's a common misconception, uh, that most highway safety officers think that, uh, cars can drive themselves, that there's fully self-driving cars out there, um, and that they're on sale to the general public. Uh, so again, this is uh, a problem of marketing. Yeah, we we saw that. What was in? I think one of the cruise vehicles in San Francisco was pulled over by the police and stopped. And then when the officer approached the vehicle, took off again. Um, so that's that's good to know when that's coming to your neighborhood. Uh, if if you're in law enforcement. Yeah. So this is uh, also in the article uh, in April, an AV operated by GM back cruise drove away from a police officer in San Francisco before a traffic stop could be completed. Um, uh, <laughs> if there was a person involved, I think that officer started to take out their gun. Uh, this incident comes up frequently in Bay Area training classes. A Waymo vehicle would have responded differently. They're claiming um, <laughs> if they had stopped our vehicle, a spokesperson says the windows would have been rolled down and the rider services people would have been on the speaker saying, hi, officer, how can I help you? <laughs> oh, and a donut and some coffee. <laughs> I, I, this is, I mean, first of all, that rider services person would probably have to wake up, you know, stop scratching themselves and be like, what, why is our car stopped? Oh, it read Sart- Sartre again. Okay. Um, hi, officer. Come on. Where's the driver's license? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. License and registration. How do they do that? We don't know. Fred, do you know yet? <laughs> uh, magic, I think. Oh, magic. Uh, the article also talks a lot about crash preparedness, where they start up to train, um, you know, fire department safety officers of where and how they can cut into the vehicle, which is something we've talked about before, where they were talking about in uh, Jaguar I-Pace electric vehicles, they run a bunch of hoses that bring air and clean uh, fluid to the sensor array, the, the LIDAR and radar on top of the vehicle uh, through the C-pillar of the car. And so... You know, it's great that they're letting these guys know, hey, if you have to do a root remover the roof, watch out when you cut these cables. Um, yeah, but I mean, think about when there are now, you know, in 20 years, if there are 750 different models of these things on the road, what the hell are first responders supposed to do? Um, there's got to be some type of standardization. I mean, unless we have robots that have replaced first responders by then and can be, you know, uploaded with uploaded with the latest blueprint from every vehicle on Earth. 
um, there really needs to be a better solution than every company training every firefighter and emergency responder in America on, you know, hundreds of different vehicle designs to ensure their safety. Well, this is a problem that's been addressed by the aircraft industry by just putting labels on aircraft where you're not supposed to do anything. Don't lift here. Do not step here. Air intake. Uh, you've, you've seen these labels on aircraft in there and they are standardized. Not a big expense associated with it. Um, you know, it could be that if somebody wants a tangerine metal flake finish on their car, they don't want to have a sticker on it that says do not cut here. But still, you know, there ought to be some way of marking it that is unobtrusive enough so people will accept it, but still distinctive enough so that safety personnel will know how and when to rescue the occupants. That's interesting. Maybe they have like a, a this is a good use for uh, augmented reality. You know, those those glasses that you can put on and you can see additional information. That would be kind of neat as as first responders wearing that. They can look at the vehicle and see, oh, this is a Tesla model, whatever um, battery compartments mm-hmm. here, major wirings here. And so they'd know to cut. Look at that. I just created a new app. I like that. You need, you need to go sell that business to some vulture capitalists. Yeah. All right, guys. Podcast over. Finally, something useful for Facebook to do. <laughs> well, they, they won't do that. But that's a, you know, if anyone's out there, you want to team up and do that. Contact me. I'm not going to give you my email address. Uh, and continuing with uh, the line of magical thinking, Tesla. <laughs> uh, Tesla, uh, you, you ever get a, a, a open a bank account or a credit card and, you know, those long contracts in there that no one ever reads, including including the lawyer on this podcast? Well, there's always something in there called forced arbitration. Now, I don't like anything forced. Uh, and so forced arbitration, what it says is you give up your rights as a U.S. citizen and you will skip jury by trial. Instead, you will let some random person paid for by the enemy to decide your fate. So Tesla, uh, if you buy a Tesla, you're you're signing away your rights to a jury trial. So if you have a problem and you and every other person who bought that vehicle has the same problem, you can't team up and try to fix it. Instead, you have to go through uh, a judge that Tesla hired, paid for, and that person will decide your fate. Um, Well, you also have to physically go to a venue that is chosen by Tesla. It does not have to be convenient for the uh, person who is bringing the claim. So if if you all want to go to Mountain View, you know, it's where you're probably going to end up going. Not a bad place to go, but still to be forced to go there to get your uh, backup light fixed. I'm not sure that's a good idea. It's uh, it's just this arbitration stuff has been used for a long time in the context of lemon laws and bad cars and and, and under warranty and other things. And it's never we've never really found an arbitration program that we thought didn't hedge towards favoring um, automakers and manufacturers. And in this case, you know, they're attempting, you know, you saw what Uber was doing with sexual assaults when they had to um, cancel those arbitration agreements a couple of years back. Um, Most automakers aren't really able to use these because of the dealer model. If they were, you know, if they had a direct sales model, they probably would. Um, Tesla's using it. 
it seems pretty effectively to prevent class action suits. Um, they don't work quite as well if you get injured or killed in a Tesla, but Tesla's fighting those lawsuits very stringently as well. So um, arbitration, binding arbitration for consumers generally, we think is a is a terrible thing. It essentially creates kangaroo courts that ensure that people won't be able to access the American civil justice system and bring a claim against manufacturers um, or suppliers or dealers for injuries and deaths. So what's an example as a consumer that I'd want to, you know, I'd want to sue Tesla or whatever company um, because it's a problem with my vehicle. But as an individual, it might not be worth it for me to sue them because it's something relatively minor they should just fix that I'd want to have this class class action option. Uh, it would generally be something that is more of a quality issue. I mean, there are class actions for safety issues, but we see you see a lot more for quality issues um, and things, you know, where, you know, five or six owners, you know, find each other or a lawyer finds them. You know, you never know how these cases are going to start, but they might have you know a complaint about how musk has rolled out the self-driving software and they all have the same complaint and they've paid a lot of money for it and they've waited for a year or whatever and they want to go back and sue them for that and say hey where's my self-driving car you promised me and those are getting thrown out of court straight into arbitration so that's that's the kind of example you know uh quality you know fraud misrepresentation the types of claims that arise around vehicles all the time in america that's actually a great point from the new york times article it says uh tesla argues that buyers knew that performance of the self-driving software depended on future advances in technology um which is like the does that mean it's not full self-driving if it's coming <laughs> I don't understand. It's all word games and deception. Yeah. So wait a second. I paid you fifteen grand for full self driving, but somehow I knew it would only work on future advances in technology. In twenty years, on a different car. Right. It's uh, full of something. That's for sure. Yeah. Hi uh, On the bright side, um, Tesla buyers can opt out of arbitration and preserve their right to trial by sending a letter to the company within a month of buying a car. But if you're aware of or exercise that option. I advise everyone that's thinking or listening to this podcast that's buying a Tesla to do that. Um, perhaps this is something we can offer listeners. We can have a little form on the Center for Auto Safety website. Well, we see, hey, you know, oh, it's no. just, you do not want to be trapped in arbitration generally. I mean, that's just, a, it's not a good place for a consumer with a complaint. Uh, and continuing the thread of magical thinking, it's uh, time for the, the Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. This week, we're going to talk about the illegal driving behaviors, the untested, unchecked safety record of St. Nick. Well, thank you. I think that's unfair to St. Nick. But, you know, there's a, there's a people have talked about magical reindeer to drive the sleigh. This is complete nonsense. We don't deal in magic here. I, I, I bring your attention to the uh, the whole idea of the North Pole. Now, a, a question for both of you is, <laughs> oh, no. if you were at the North Pole, what direction is the wind coming from? Uh, which, which North Pole? The North Pole of the world where we live. 
Listeners, if you have children in the room, please have them leave now. And if you oh, have no. children this in the room, this is this is going to be instructive for them. So, if you're at the North Pole, what direction does the wind come from? South. You got it. You yeah. win the prize. No matter which way you're looking, right? The wind is always coming from the south. This is what's known as a, in mathematics as a singularity. Okay, so. The upshot of that is that if since the wind is always coming from the south, it has nowhere to go except straight up, right? Because the wind can't go anywhere except from the south. So all the wind that's in the Arctic converges at the North Pole and creates a jet that goes straight up. So this is, uh, you know, and you've seen this document that actually people talk about in meteorology, the polar jet. And the polar vortex. So, you know, this is, this is well established in the meteorological world. Uh, Santa's sleigh takes advantage of this because Santa, where, where does Santa live? The, the North Pole. At the North Pole. And there's a good reason for that because he takes advantage of this polar jet. So if you position the sleigh right over the North Pole, then this polar jet emerges and pushes the sleigh up to a very high altitude. This is the same technology that's being exploited now in various militaries with their boost glide technology for <laughs> hypersonic vehicles. And this has been in the press a lot lately, and, and you've all read about it. So so Santa is a is a, a beneficiary of um, DARPA? Uh, that- quite the opposite, actually. DARPA is catching up with Santa and trying to replicate the technology that Santa has been developing for millennia. Um, so let me, you know, give you a couple examples of how this, if you've ever seen the, the documentary movie Elf, which, you know, describes a lot of the technology at the North Pole, this, it, sure. it helps because we'll be coming back to that as we go through this. But if you look at the sleigh critically, what's going on, you know, there's the indication of, uh, a red nose on one of the reindeer, right? Rudolph. This has been documented. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. We've right. all heard that. We've all heard that legend. But in fact, what happens is that in a vehicle that's traveling through the atmosphere at hypersonic speeds, the compression of the atmosphere causes a rise in temperature, and actually the leading surfaces glow red. So the story of the Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer is, of course, exactly true, but it's a misinterpretation of where the red comes from. So the red is is not causal. The red is an effect of the hypersonic transportation of the sleigh. So Rudolph mm-hmm. is an allegory for hypersonic transportation of the sleigh. Well, and example. Yes, okay. allegory and example. So oh, good, good. Okay. <laughs> um, of course, it has to be hypersonic because he's got, you know, Santa's got a, a lot to do. And only 24 hours to do it. But, you know, again, going back to what we all know about Santa, what time does Santa arrive at your house to deliver presents? Oh, there's so a time? It's, it's Oh, yeah. It's always midnight, of course. Uh-huh. Right? You tell the kids to go to bed because Santa's coming. Uh, we all know that. But, I, you know, I was, if you think of it, there's a progression around the world. And so Santa actually has 24 hours to deliver the toys all the way around the world. But still, he's very busy. So this hypersonic... Um, approach makes a lot of sense, and it's really the only way this can be done. The uh, choice of reindeer is actually very interesting because uh, inquiring minds would want to know why wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't you do something like pigeons that 
can fly inherently, or why would you use reindeer for this? Well, mm-hmm. it turns out that deer have hollow uh, hairs in their fur. And this is an insulation technology that NASA has actually replicated on the space shuttle by using what they call aerogel to line the surfaces of the space shuttle so that it doesn't so, so that it rejects heat as it comes back into the atmosphere again something that's useful for hypersonic flight that is uh you know just merely trying to replicate what the santa team has already developed and exploited by using the reindeer also the reindeer with their many appendages dissipate the shock wave that we would ordinarily associate with supersonic flight you know, NASA's been spending a lot of money trying to replicate this to, and, you know, have quiet supersonic vehicles. And you've probably read about that. The way you do that is to disperse the shock from not just the point where Rudolph's nose is glowing red from the hypersonic heat, but also to distribute that back. So that's why you've got the team of reindeer rather than just a single reindeer, because that dissipates the shock wave, makes the, it makes the supersonic flight. Of course, supersonic is part of hypersonic, but makes the hypersonic flight much quieter than it would be otherwise. Also, the is seat- Santa wearing a seatbelt? Because I've never seen him with a seatbelt on. Not a lap belt, nothing. Well, he's he, a five-point he, harness. Doesn't really have to because he doesn't, you know, he's not projected to run into a lot of things when he's up there. And the sleigh itself, sleigh itself, you got to remember, is uh, shaped specifically for use as a lifting body now uh, you've probably done this probably skipped the rock on a on a on a lake somewhere using flat rocks right excuse me well that's an example of lifting body technology and the sleigh has got a a flat bottom and it's got a round leading edge that round leading edge protects Santa and the pressure of the shock waves that go around that actually compress Santa into the seat. That's another reason why he's uh, wearing that very large fluffy suit. It gives him some insulation from the heat that's, that's surrounding him. You know, so he's not, morbidly shock. O- he's not morbidly obese. That's just, that's a. Well, no, like I'm, I'm not sure back. where they came from, because if you go back to the original literature about Santa Claus, uh, he's documented that he is an elf lively and quick right i mean these are ideal characteristics for somebody who is piloting a hypersonic vehicle because number one you need to be quick chuck yeager apparently was quoted as saying when he was doing his test pilot work think fast act slow follow the checklist so you know this is an ideal situation for an elf that is lively and quick low mass ability of going through the checklist Mm. You know, keeping that all under control. Also, there's, you know, so let me tell you, we talked about shock dispersal. We talked about insulation. Is it self-driving? Um, because that's a lot of stops in a short period of time. I mean, how is an, even an elf going to navigate that? I mean, is he using ways? Well, he crowd, no, 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 no. He crowdsources it among the reindeer. You know, they've each got brains. And using... <laughs> Using parallel and distributed processing technology, all of that combined brain power allows him to go ahead and use organic um, organic sources for the navigation that takes place. And, you know, there's really a lot of brain power there. If you think of a goshawk, for example, flying through the woods at 60 miles an hour and so that it can pick a, a, 
a squirrel off of a branch. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of processing power. And reindeer have similar capabilities. They travel around the northern latitudes uh, going on migrations that are thousands of miles long. This is, a, this is just this, the same technology, but it's been, you know, this parallel processing technology that people are struggling to develop now for computers. This is something Santa's been working on for millennia, and he's, he's really nailed that with his reindeer team. Um, what else is there? Has oh, yeah, you know, crash tested? I mean, we see all these great footage of, of, you know, the insurance Institute for highway safety crashing things. They get side impact. They got roof crush. I mean, he doesn't have a roof, which again, seems unsafe to me and unwise, but you know, well, what's that sleigh doing? <laughs> well, you know, what is Ru- Ray, uh, Rudolph's body doing hitting a barrier at 40 miles per hour? Well, when you when you talk about crash technology, you really have to differentiate between the individual and the and the cohort, right? So if you have a so large number of vehicles, up. if you have a large number of vehicles, you've got to you know address the statistics of how often a crash is likely to take place when you do the crash testing technology. For an individual vehicle, though, you can uh, you can proof it so that it's not going to have a very high probability of crashing. And again, if you go back to the documentary movie Elf. You'll see that as as Santa crashed into Central Park, uh, it was perfectly fine. He found a place to settle down. The reindeer settled down, and he was able to resume the travels as you know people's interest in Christmas came back. So, you know, there's clearly a technology to work there to to avoid the crashing. And We've never heard any reports of Santa crashing into a house. I mean, really, he lands on the houses, he does his business, he moves on. Well, he uh, puts everyone into fi- a forced binding arbitration, I hear. Well, there's no need for that because Santa oh, doesn't yeah. make any mistakes. Yeah, I mean, well, hey, you want the gifts? Hey, I didn't crash. No, nothing crashed here. Here's an Xbox 900. Well, yeah, but now, nah, but you know, it's still free, so you don't really don't have uh, standing to sue or. I don't think there's really a need for liability clauses or or even lawsuits associated with this. I think you this. work for Big Santa. I think the way you're spinning this, you sound like a spokesperson for Big Santa Incorporated. I don't the know. Santa if I for Auto you. Safety is independent; and has been for over 50 years. We're we're very proud of that. But a couple other items Santa to safety. you know to kind of round this out. So you know the. You've also seen that NORAD tracks Santa every year. Now, NORAD is a very serious agency. They they look at protecting the entire North American continent from attack. They would not put out a spurious statement that they're tracking reindeer if it weren't exactly true. I mean, these are these are military professionals. They don't screw around. You know, we don't want them to screw around. Paying good money to not screw around. Weren't you a military professional for a while? Well, let's skip right over that. Um, and you know, there, there, but this is something else that is important to understand, which is there's been a lot of reports in the press lately about, um, the military disco- discovering and tracking and ha- having to understand unexplained aerial phenomenon, which used to be called, um, UFOs, but the unexplained aerial phenomenon. And I, and I really think that this is caused by sleigh qualification and proficiency training. You know, I mean, this is a considerable thing that Santa's got to do. And uh, I, I think that would be a rational explanation for why these observations are taking place and 
the fact that they never take place on Christmas because that's when Santa's right. busy flying the sleigh. That can't be coincidence. That's got to be causal. So well, they have to uh, continually develop the sleigh. Yeah, absolutely. The world, you know, the population is growing every year. So there are yes. more trips every year that they're going to have to make efficiently. It, the challenge increases every year. The technology is there. You know, he's exploiting organic technology. And he's got a very important job to do. Santa is not going to fall down on this. So I leave you with that. There is a, you know, there is a, a good physical basis for understanding and exploiting the technology that Santa brings to Christmas every year. And by the way, for those people who don't observe Christmas, these unexplained aerial phenomenon do occur at other times of year. So, you know, it's, it's certainly logical to expect that the gift delivery from this, uh, legendary person can occur at other times of the year to those people who are not oriented towards any particular holiday like Christmas, right? There's other holidays out there. So we need to be cognizant of those people as well. So I, I don't want to get too fixated on the Christmas, but, you know, he does have a big job to do on Christmas and would like to take care of other children at other times of year as well. So again, going back to those unexplained aerial phenomenon, I think there's a logical explanation for that, and I can't think of any other way to understand how Santa could continually upgrade the sleigh to meet the increasing demands for gift and goodwill that occur every year. Brad Thank Perkins, you. ladies and gentlemen, chief Santa spokesperson. I think he's hiding the truth of what's really going on. He's refusing to submit his sleigh to crashworthiness, but hey. I think you heard it there first, uh, and that was quite amazing, and it makes me wonder how much time this man has on his hands. Not enough. There's never enough. Okay. In more interesting news, well, not more interesting, but different news, uh, New York Times has an interesting article about, uh, what are they calling them, street street uh, street vigilantes no it's basically it's pedestrians and cyclists who go around new york city and see license plates that are obscured folded over um and unfold them to reveal that the license plate so these scoff laws can actually get ticketed for from speed cameras from going over bridges and this is funny because just yesterday i heard my neighbor yelling at a well not yelling discussing with a traffic cop why aren't they giving tickets to those illegal mopeds everywhere and the cop said and i quote oh they don't have a license plate we can't ticket them <laughs> like so if you're listening at home you want to drive in new york city do whatever you want just remove your license plate it's good yeah that was that was it's crazy to me that there has to be a, a, a fleet of citizen kind of citizen soldiers who are bending license plates back into shape and uh, even on police vehicles, it seems that was a, a just wild article. Um, and it seems like, you know, some people even risk life and limb doing this. There were there were a couple of examples of altercations that occurred, you know, people getting caught touching other people's cars. Um so that was, you know, it's shocking to me that, you know, that, but, but it's, you know, it is important that we're able to identify vehicles speeding, for instance, if you have speeding enforcement set up in New York, which is something I know that they are starting to focus on um, as part of upgrading infrastructure to make sure that pedestrians and bicyclists are protected. If you can't identify offenders and there's no, 
enforcement that forces these folks to get their license plates in shape, then uh, the system will fail. There's no way to enforce it. So, you know, I, you know, I applaud the folks who are, who are, you know, taking the law into their own hands in some ways, but I don't encourage it. I don't think it's worth risking life and limb. I think they need to, you know, do their best to contact their councilmen and councilwomen and get um, them to force the police department to start actively ticketing people who are obscuring their license plates, even the ones that are on the police force. Agreed. Fred, agree? I was just wondering if you had uh, gone down to straighten out the license plate of the police car those idling outside your building a couple of weeks ago that you talked about. Oh, no, yeah. that, that license plate's in the clear. And um, I, yeah, that's, that's how I figured out where the vehicle was from. Um, they have not been back. I assume they're listeners of the podcast and they're like, oh, he's on to us. Well, how, how are the license plates being bent? Is that uh, done specifically by people to avoid detection or is that some, some you know, is there some super villain that's going around New York bending license plates? I believe it's to avoid detection. It sounded like what they're doing basically is just folding their license plate up or in half to prevent them from being seen by the cameras. Well, I've also seen ones where it's a it's a cover over the license plate where it's you can't see through it. It's essentially a heavily black tinted cover over a license plate, which I I can't understand how you're not getting pulled over for that. But, you know, yeah, who knows? Um, oh, interesting car safety news. We don't have any notes on this, but the other day I hear this crash outside my window and I look outside and somebody coming off the highway here crash their vehicle i see all the airbags go off and i'm like oh my god but then i see two 14 year old boys running out of the car running away so yep. um hey 14 year old boys stealing cars they don't get knocked out from when airbags hit them um, yeah this goes back to tiktok nitsa needs better theft protection rules or manufacturers need to start securing their cars better using better cybersecurity tools exactly i didn't get the make and model of the vehicle but it looked like it was an import how, how did you happen to know they were 14? They friends of yours? <laughs> I, you know, I did a rough estimate. They were anywhere between the ages of 12 to 15. 16, the kids start changing the, you know, come on, you've had children. They, they, they get different looking. But well, yeah. I, I've, uh, I had two daughters. So, you know, it's a different process. All right. Well, there you go. Um, so there's that. Um, okay. Uh, I guess we got to, we got to go to it. Another Takata death. Um, yeah. This is sad. Uh, this is a, a, a Chrysler vehicle. So Stellantis, the manufacturer owner of Stellantis, is urging people to stop driving oh, Dodge Magnum wagons, Dodge Challenger and Charger muscle cars, and Chrysler 300 sedans from the 2005 through 2010 model years. Um, this is an issue we've talked about a dozen times. People go to uh, nitsa.gov slash recalls and see if your vehicle is part of this. This is a free recall. Uh, this is completely preventable. Yeah, and there's, you know, go to um, also, I think the other website is safeairbags.com where you can enter your VIN number and set up a recall appointment if you are under recall. The, the, the awful thing here is that, you know, this recall started seven years ago or so, and, 85% of the vehicles have been repaired, but this is the most deaths we've ever seen in the United States in a year. 
um, from this problem. And it's because while only 15% or so of these inflators are left on cars, it is a um, problem that's caused by environmental exposure. And over time, you get more environmental exposure and you get more airbag inflators exploding. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. So essentially, these things are more, the ones that are left on the road are more dangerous than they've ever been. And they're only going to get more dangerous. So, you know, everyone, I mean, I, I think it's coming to the point where, you know, consumers have somewhat of a duty to have these things repaired. I mean, you're essentially walking around with a hand grenade in your car if you haven't gotten this repaired. Um, and, I, you know, I just can't urge people enough to get it done. Yeah, and it's not just that the airbag itself will explode and go off. It's that the canister, the metal canister that contains the accelerant, that will explode, sending metal shrapnel into your face. And I think that's causing most of the deaths. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, again, this is a, a, a simple fix, um, and it's a free fix. So, please do that. And with that, um, it's time for Recall Roundup. Strap in. Time for the Recall Roundup. So the first one we want to talk about is my favorite subject and my teenage son's favorite subject too. Motorcycles. Operating a motorcycle without a functioning speed display can can increase the risk of crash or injury. Who knew that? Uh, Kawasaki is recalling certain 2022 Ninja H2SXSE motorcycles. What a horrible name. That's the issue to call it. Just rename it something else. Uh, a software error in the multifunction meter may cause the motorcycle speed display to fail. As such, these vehicles fail to comply with the requirements of Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard number 123, which Fred, of course, do, motorcycle controls and displays. Um, dealers will update the meter software free of charge. Ha- I remember when speedometers, uh, it was a mechanical connection. Just, yeah. <laughs> just date myself there. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, um, it's a lot cheaper to do it electronically than it is to run a cable. Yeah. through your you know through your system and up the wheels and all that stuff and, and this one it it strikes me as something that you know electronic speed displays are not new um how does how does that go wrong how do they miss that that's not a friday afternoon problem well we've talked a lot about software verification how difficult it is uh this is an example of software verification that failed this, you know, there were there was some software configuration and in, inputs that simply were uh, seemingly were not part of the verification process. It's a it's, yeah, a, diffi- I mean, it's a difficult they, thing to do. They figured it out doing a reliability test. Actually, it was basically a failure in the logic that you know essentially the the it hit an, an existential crisis and the meter free froze and then it had has to restart and during that restart period you have no speedometer that's got to be the scariest thing in the world well the second scariest thing to riding a motorcycle well, you know it's it's certainly dangerous but i don't think if you're driving and your speedometer goes out for a few seconds you know i guess it could be a problem well, my yeah. uninformed observation is, uh, based on the motorcycles I've seen going down the highway, that what's indicated on the speedometer is not a real critical determinant of the behavior of the driver. They seem to go, uh, you know, their own way. Exactly. Any moment time. All right. Uh, Ford Motor Company is re- uh, recalling uh, 1,226 
Ford Broncos from model year 2021 to 22. Uh, Ford's team reviewed plant records to determine the population of effect vehicles. Uh, this is an issue with their side impact sensor installation error proofing records. Wait, what? Sometimes these things are not written in English. Michael? No, they're not. What, what, what's going on here with their side impact sensors? Well, functionally, when it comes down to it, they're not able to detect crashes properly and deploy. Uh, I, I believe this is for side impact airbag deployment. And and we want those to go off. Yes. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, if you've got yeah, that. It could also cause unintentional deployment um, or deploy at the wrong time. So, you know, if the airbags aren't deploying at the exactly proper time during a crash, they're not going to do you any good. So um, this one could have been a Friday afternoon problem, Anthony. That, that It feels like it. Uh, okay. Here's an, uh, one uh, a notice to Hertz. NHTSA is opening an audit query to investigate whether the Hertz Corporation has compiled with complied with the requirements of the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act. Uh, the Safety Act requires, among other things, that a rental company shall not rent a vehicle subject to a safety recall unless the recall remedy has been performed. Wait, so I can go into my local Hertz and rent, for example, a Kawasaki motorcycle with a broken speedometer? You shouldn't be able to, um, but you can go into, if you go into your local rental car agency and rent a vehicle, you should be assured that there is not an active and open recall on that vehicle. Um, that is how the law was written. Um, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was, I think it may have been 2015, maybe 2012, um, that prohibits the rent, uh, a rental or of vehicles with an open recall. So what's going on here is it looks like, and this is something that we've seen before um, in, in other manufacturers because they have us, I mean, not other, other rental car companies, they have a, you know, a limited stock of vehicles and sometimes they buy a lot of one type. <clears throat> so if you buy, for instance, a lot of uh, a fleet of Nissan Altimas to to be your midsize vehicle and your fleet, and all of a sudden there's a recall on the hood latch, for example, say the hoods are flying up and there's not a part available yet, and there may not be for another six months, you functionally can't use all of those vehicles for six months. Um, so you can see where that might be a problem for, for a company of that size that has that many vehicles in its fleet. And we've seen various ways uh, that they get around it. In this case, it, there's not much information provided about, you know, what recalls were involved in that sort of thing. But I would expect that this is going to be the type of recall where there wasn't a repair available. Um, I mean, we've even seen cases where, the um, rental companies are getting software on a USB drive for some of these software recalls and updating the vehicles themselves quickly before the before the software is even released to the public. So it's a big concern for them, but it's necessary because otherwise they will rent vehicles with open recalls to folks and we will see people get injured or killed. So um, the, the solution to all that is faster recall repairs. Um, for manufacturers and automakers, which is a continual issue, um, has been with supply chain issues. But even before that, um, we don't see a lot of pressure on manufacturers from NHTSA to speed up their recall repairs. And I assume this is not a unique situation for Hertz. 
this is obviously any rental car company. Um, it just hurts is the one. Yes. Being- I, if I had to guess, I would say they're probably hurts. Probably isn't the only one violating, um, that provision, but they're the one whose nuts is looking into right now. So um, I'm, I'm interested to see the results of this investigation if NHTSA posts them within the next year. And, and as a consumer, is there anything I can do to protect myself? You I can mean, look up the VIN number of every vehicle you rent um, uh, uh, right when you oh rent it. You just pop in the VIN number, and it'll, if it's got a recall, it'll tell you. And then you call me and say they're renting vehicles with recalls on them. Okay. And then I called NHTSA and they add them to the investigation. <laughs> but then I, I'm still on vacation and I just take the car anyway. Well, that, that's your choice, Anthony. Uh, I mean, you could go back into the line in the airport and wait another 30 minutes and exchange the car. But then I got to check that VIN number and yep. my vacation's just in that, an That's why it shouldn't be lot. your problem. It's easier for them to do it on the front end. Exactly. Because then I'd have to sue Hertz for divorce. Because Hertz is busy right now. They're they're trying to um I mean they're just trying not to report cars stolen and get people arrested at this point. Let's give them a little break. Yeah. Well we'll let them go. Uh <laughs> all right. I think we're we're gonna end on this the story that I couldn't quite follow. I'm not really sure what it is, and I think the two of you had some input where the story is uh Porsche the the headline from Ars Technica is Porsche's synthetic gasoline factory comes online today in Chile, uh, which sounds interesting. So they're making using wind power, some sort of synthetic gasoline that they're going to start using for um, at all of their Porsche dealer centers to fuel their cars at dealerships and potentially for their F1 uh, racing cars when they come online. But my questions around this were numerous and were uh, what synthetic gasoline is it? cleaner better than gas gasoline uh, and I, I think the two of you did some research and possibly made some information up too that, we would that, never that, do that it looked <laughs> like the process effectively created methanol which has been used i believe in racing and in other areas for quite some time i think i don't think you can put it in your car now my understanding is that it's much more corrosive than gasoline and and would uh, i i don't know it might work for a minute but your car is going to fail <laughs> if you tried to put it in there you can blend it into certain gasolines um you've probably heard of that being done with ethanol uh right. from corn in america uh but methanol seems to be it you know I, I, it's china seems to be doing a little in methanol the united states is doing some research on it. i mean it seems like a fairly viable um option what caught my eye was that it's it's slightly less flammable than gasoline which might uh it burns a little slower it's harder to ignite um which might you know help folks who are involved in crashes where there's a fuel spill um and i believe from an environmental perspective if you're not making it or extracting it and making it from natural gas and you're synthesizing it like these guys are supposedly doing it it's it may be a plus for the environment as well and it appears to be biodegradable so yep. what are the drawbacks i guess is the question yeah well they're cl- they actually claiming in the article that the synthetic e-fuel is a direct drop-in for pump gasoline huh. uh, yeah so what are they adding to that i wonder i, I don't i don't know they say they will use wind power to electrolyze water into hydrogen and oxygen the hydrogen is then combined with carbon captured from the air or industrial sources to synthesize methanol. 
um, which right. can then be turned into larger hydrocarbons to be used as fuel. Right. Dr. Science? That's that next part, larger hydro- hydrocarbons. Yeah. Right. So you can convert methanol into uh, cyclic hydrocarbons, which is what benzene is. Basically, it's a cyclic, called a cyclic uh, hydrocarbon. Uh, methanol, as Michael said, depresses the ignition temperature of the fuel when it's in, uh, introduced as part of a fuel solution. So benzene or the aromatic hydrocarbon plus methanol has a higher octane rating than benzene alone. Now, people don't talk about octane rating a lot these days, but um, in the olden days, if you had a high-performance engine with very high compression ratio, you needed to get high-octane fuel because high-octane fuel doesn't mean more energy. It just means that it resists detonation better than uh, a lower-octane so you can go to a higher compression ratio. The engine will work just fine with the methanol. And uh, because it's higher compression ratio, using basic thermodynamics, you'll see that that's a more efficient engine than the uh, engine that has lower compression ratio, if you could just compare the two. Methanol is more corrosive than ethanol. They are both corrosive, however. And so that's that's why you can't leave... Uh, fuel that you get from a gas station in your lawnmower for a year and a half and then expect it to start. You're likely to have some problems. So there is all that. But if they use carbon that they're sourcing from something other than a conventional fuel source, then it is not contributing to the overall carbon footprint of the of the vehicle or, you know, of the earth or whatever, however you want to look at that. Okay, so is this potentially looks as a good thing, or are we still thinking about it? We have to, again, it depends on where you draw the boundary around the system. If you draw the boundary around the whole uh, chemical process, you got to look at where the electricity is coming from to fuel the process. And wind energy is a great source because it doesn't have any carbon generation associated with it. But if this is expanded to an industrial scale for a large number of vehicles, will the wind resource be able to support that that larger number of vehicles and you know dramatic expansion that would be required to become a commercial fuel source? And so, is, it, is it true that Santa sleigh runs off of methanol? No, 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 no. We explained oh. it before. Santa sleigh runs off the polar jet. Right. And, and by jet. the way, I forgot to mention that the polar, the interaction between the polar jet and charged particles emitted from the sun is where the aurora borealis comes from. So, the, you know, there's a lot of evidence for the, the strength of this polar jet. But thank you for bringing that up. I'd forgotten to mention that. Sure. Michael, you're and, mute. And, and I took, hey, 53 minutes before he realizes. <laughs> In our next episode, we're going to discuss how Santa builds a house near this polar jet. <laughs> Oh, I think he might got you there. And how does he build a house on the open ocean? He lives. Well, in a- I'm not a I'm not a civil engineer or an ocean engineer, so uh, we have to bring in more resources. Really? And how does this polar jet work in the South Pole? Okay, Australians, you're ignoring them. No, no it goes it goes the other way at the South Pole. <laughs> uh, uh, for those of you at home without the video portion of this podcast, uh, Michael's made a funny. There's gesture. a giant hole. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, All that's right. why penguins don't fly because things are just you know kind of inverted at the South Pole. 
Right. So Santa swims down there. Okay. You heard it your first Santa scuba. Well, no, come on. There, no. there are no people living. There are no children living in Antarctica. Santa doesn't have to cover that. What the Australians? No, they're not in Antarctica. They're well, way far you know, north. Anyway. With that, um, that's the end of uh, another 54 or so minutes of your existence. Um, but I want to put that on a positive note. We've learned about Santa. We've learned about methanol. We've reminded you again to replace your airbag if you have a Takata. We've delved deep into the psychological existential problems of self-driving vehicles. And for that, we just ask your kindness and your donations. Go to autosafety.org. Click on that donate button and uh, tell us how much you love the show. Uh, thank you for listening. And thanks, everyone. Happy holidays. And please drive safely and take a lift if you have to. Right. And thank everyone else's your angry grandmother or kind grandmother on the road. Yes. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Re- remove yourself emotionally from the process of driving. That's what I think is a good way to approach it. Ah. And well, next, and remember, next time, the safest way to drive is to take the train. True. Goodbye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.